please do take your seats. Uh, those of you who are new, great to have you with us. Hope I can meet you later. My name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors. I'll be preaching for us now. If you'd like to turn back in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. And if you have this church Bible, that's page 1014. 1014. Pep Guardiola is a Spanish football coach who manages in the English League. Some say he's one of the greatest coaches of all time. Ten years ago, he joined a German club called Bayern Munich, and in the first season alone, they won four trophies. Pep is a winner. He's known for his focus, perfectionism, attention to detail. He is concerned about every single aspect of the game, strategy, and the players, even down to their diet. Pep dictates what they eat. There's a story about his first games at Bayern in Munich, that illustrates this. It's to do with some wonderful German cakes. The team went for a friendly game. It wasn't even a serious game. It was a friendly, and they had a great game. And after the game, they went to the dressing room, and in they brought some wonderful German cakes. And I've been to Bavaria, and let me tell you, those cakes are to die for. And they brought in all these cakes and buns, and the players were happily taking part in this. After all, they just played a game of football. And Pep was watching and not eating. And uh, he said after the, the, on the way home, there will be no more buns for Bayern. And they never ate them again. He's the boss. What if a player wants to leave the team? He's unapologetic. Somebody announced they wanted to leave his current club. And he said, hopefully other players won't decide to move on. But I don't want people who don't want to stay here to be with us and try to achieve what we want to achieve. In other words, are you in or out? Now that's a football coach. That's what it means to follow him. And at the end of the day, football is just a game with 22 people kicking a pigskin around a field. It's not that important. To be on his team, you'd need dedication, commitment, and rigor. What about Jesus Christ? The Lord of all the rightful king and saviour of this world. What does it mean to follow him? We should hardly expect that following Jesus is somehow less committed, less demanding than being in a football team, should we? And that is the point of this reading today. It's that followers of Jesus are called to radical discipleship. Radical discipleship. To be totally committed to Christ. You will know if you've been around for a few weeks that we're reading Mark, this book, a story of two halves. The first half is asking, who is Jesus? Focusing on his public ministry, his mighty deeds, showing that he is God walking the earth, doing the things that only God can do. And then in chapter 8, there's a hinge point, And Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And one of his closest followers, Peter, gives the right answer. You are the Messiah. A great breakthrough. The Messiah was God's special king the one who would deal with Israel's enemies, free them from oppression, put the world to rights, bring in a new reign of peace and justice, time without end. That's what they're hoping for. But straight away, Jesus begins to teach about what his being the king will look like, and it means him being rejected, suffering, being killed, and on the third day, rising from the dead. This is just completely bonkers. It's shocking counterintuitive. Peter takes him aside and begins to correct him. You can't say this. 
And that reaction would be true for all of them. No one would think that the king would suffer. And Jesus' response was to call the crowd along to him with the disciples and and spell out what following him means. It's so important, I'm going to read it again. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Now that's the hinge of the book and that's why we keep emphasizing that what we have to understand is that we're now in the second half of the book and now we're focusing on what Jesus came to do, going to the cross and what that means. And so the focus in the second half of the book is now moving more and more to private instruction to teaching. You notice this passage is teaching and then again they go into a house and he explains more to the disciples. He is showing them what it means to follow him. And so he's showing us too. And they really need it because following Jesus is so radical that it goes against the grain for all of us. And it requires a complete reorientation of your life around his priorities. It means a complete change of character, of aspirations. And we need this too. Now, in the midst of this section, bear in mind I've said it's all about being a disciple, we find this chapter 10, and if you've got it open there, look down, you can see uh, in our Bibles, you've probably got some headings that the translators have put there for us. And it seems like a bit of a gear change. So it starts off, they've got one heading there, divorce. Then it says the little children in Jesus. Then it says the rich in the kingdom of God. And let me just say, these headings here, in some ways, don't help us at all. They break this text up and they make it look like we've kind of randomly changed topic. A bit like Mark was writing away and then it was lunch break. He went off, he had a lovely lunch and when he came back he thought, where was I? Ah, I'll tell you what, I'll put some stuff in about divorce. (laughs) It doesn't work like that, okay? Mark is still on topic. Uh, It's very much part of this overall thrust that followers of Jesus are called to radical discipleship. And so what we're going to see is radical discipleship with regard to marriage and sexuality and divorce, with regard to our postures of humility, and with regard to our wallet. Okay? Three areas. Only got time for the first two today, and we'll come back to the rich man next week, God willing. So I want to think about integrity in marriage and relationships and humility today. Firstly, integrity, uh, verses 1 to 12. Have a look there, verse 2. Some Pharisees came and they tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, who are these Pharisees? These men belong to a protest group who want to reform the nation. And they are like the heroes of the people. They're so... They give themselves, they, want, they, they believe in God, they, want, they have a, a high morality, they want God's word to come, but they hate Jesus because he's a threat. And so we know from chapter 3, verse 6, they're actually plotting to kill him in the background. That's going on behind the scenes. And so this question here is not innocent. 
We, we know that from the way, their posture. It's not an innocent question. And even if you look at verse 2, look what it says. Some Pharisees came, and what do they want to do? Test him. This is not an innocent inquiry. It's a test. And why do they go for this topic? Well, divorce is an emotive subject, isn't it? And they ask in public because they're trying to get Jesus in hot water. Notice the location of the episode. The region of Judea and across the Jordan. This is where John the Baptist worked. John the Baptist's ministry. We read about that in the first part of the book. And remember, John the Baptist got in trouble because what? He criticized the king, Herod. And he criticized him for his irregular marriage arrangements. Herod had taken his brother's wife and she had divorced her husband to marry him. John the Baptist spoke out against it and he was imprisoned and lost his head. So the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus in trouble with this question, aren't they? And in the Jewish world of the first century, divorce was a sure way to divide the room. It was a sure way to divide the room. There were two main schools of thought on the matter. One was associated with a rabbi called Hillel, who taught that a husband could divorce his wife for anything that displeased him. Anything. He could write her a note of divorce. That's obviously the more liberal view. The other view was that of Rabbi Shammai, and he taught that a husband could only divorce his wife for sexual infidelity. So Hillel has a kind of quickie divorce liberal position, and Shammai is more conservative. And this is where some of that led. Hillel, the house of Hillel said, even if, even if she spoiled his dinner, he could divorce her, since it is said because he is found in her indecency in anything. And one other rabbi said, even if he found someone else prettier than she, since it is said if she finds no favor in his eyes. So it got to the point with these guys that they could divorce a wife for spoiling his dinner or finding someone else who was better looking. Just think about the impact that has on women in a culture with male power. Guess which one of those views was more popular among men? Jesus responds with a question, verse 3. Notice, very notice, notice the words. What did Moses command you? Fascinating. Why does Jesus never seem to give a straight answer? <laughs> he always asks the another question. It's like the question game. Well, sometimes he does. But other times he's trying to get people to think. And sometimes he's on the counterattack to hostile critics like here. And notice how the Pharisees respond uh, verse 4, they know their Bible. Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It's true, as far as it goes. A well-known passage from Deuteronomy 24, divorce teaching. It did permit divorce, but it didn't spell out what the grounds of divorce were, the legitimate grounds, hence the debate between Hillel and Shammai. Now, the critics have not answered Jesus' question. They've answered what, Jesus, what Moses permitted. Jesus asked them what Moses commanded. Jesus wants to know what the whole Bible teaching is on the law, on mar marriage and divorce, and that means the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the books of Moses. That's where we learn about marriage, not just this one verse from Deuteronomy. 
What is the big picture of marriage? What God, the good creator, intended for humanity to flourish. And so Jesus goes right back to the foundations, Genesis 1 and 2. And in verse 6, he teaches from Genesis. At the beginning of creation, he says, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now these words are so important because what this shows us is that marriage is essentially a union. It's a union. A unity of two becoming one. Marriage is a defining, lifelong, utterly committed relationship between one man one woman for life. And this union is so profound that Jesus says they're no longer two, but one. There's no other relationship in life that you can say that of, actually. Marriage creates a bond between husband and wife that is much more than being partners, but a new entity, a new kind of human being. We might even say, two become one. It is a union at every level. YPF, I want to speak to you in a minute. No, 30 seconds I want to speak to you. A union at every level. Emotional union, psychological union, financial union, legal union, and of course sexual union. The sign of marriage is the delight and intimacy of sex. Sex is an illustration, actually, of what's happening in the rest of your lives. Two becoming one, two become one, joined together in sex. So young people, let me speak to you on this because your culture is telling you something very, very different. This is why you shouldn't get naked with someone sexually if you're not prepared to get naked with them in every area of your life. Because it's a union. You need to be united with that person before you have the sexual expression of the nakedness. Married people, a few of those here, this is why sex is contingent on the rest of your lives together. It's not a separate thing in a box, which some men think. If the marriage has become emotionally disunified, don't expect great sex. In fact, don't expect any. Obviously. First of all, address the emotional disunity other things will follow. Special word here for men who believe in headship. Never ever use your position of leadership in the family to demand sex. It's not what headship's about. Freely given from the wife. It's so important that we get this right. And Jesus, having taught this amazing, defining teaching from the Old Testament, says in verse 9, this is the big conclusion. Look at verse 9. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Wow. That's the logical outcome of Genesis teaching. God has given this provision to mankind. God has given us this unique institution of marriage. God has said there is a unique act of self-giving to another person that involves total commitment of everything you are. And there should not be any turning back from it. What is unified should not be torn apart. That's the positive teaching. 
And I think we all know that at some level. When we are at a wedding, seeing the happy couple and the beaming family and friends and the weeping father, he's got to pay the bill, <laughs> we are not hoping that it might break apart in a few years, are we? No one thinks that. Except maybe the jealous ex. But nobody else thinks it. And we all know someone who's going through a divorce, who's been through a divorce, who was affected by a divorce, and we all know the, the trauma it causes. We don't want that. It's, it's tearing apart. And because marriage changes something about you forever, divorce can't just reverse that. Now, I know this is a delicate subject for many of us. It really is. And I don't want to reopen wounds for you today. We come together here as broken people, don't we? We're all broken. We, have, we are broken in every area of our lives. Most of all sexually, I think. We've all failed and sinned, and we have been sinned against. And the hurt of brokenness in this area of divorce and sexuality and relationships is particularly painful. And divorce, by the way, is not in some special category of condemnation, although churches sometimes make it so, and they have done through history. And we must never imply that when divorce happens, both partners are at fault. Some divorces, one party is, is largely, almost completely, the innocent victim, and the other is the perpetrator. And we churches must be very, very sensitive about this. Now, that's the positive teaching and, and a, a, I guess, a, a caveat. But notice the context of this passage. Remember, this is all about being a disciple. This isn't like um, an encyclopedia or a guidebook where you just turn up, oh, page 25 has this stuff about divorce. This is not all that the Bible has to say about marriage and divorce. And this talk, this sermon, is not a, a, a seminar on divorce and remarriage, okay? I'm just teaching what we've got in front of us. This is one episode in the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus here does not go into questions of whether, when divorce is justifiable, because it sometimes is. And he doesn't go into what legitimate grounds might be. Remember, he's facing hostile critics, and he's answering about the Creator's intention for marriage. And Jesus never goes against the Old Testament law. He fulfills it. So what is the main point he's making here? It's that his disciples must have integrity in relation to marriage and sex, sex and divorce. A relational and sexual integrity that was not widely practiced in his culture. That's what the critics lacked. Notice their handling of the Bible is essentially to look for the loophole. Their question is basically, what can we get away with, not what is God's will? Oh, that, you know, if we could park there for a minute, couldn't we? Do you ever read the Bible thinking, what can I get away with, rather than what is God's will? Oh, what a question that is. Jesus is very clear. Divorce is not God's intention for marriage, although it might tragically sometimes have to be the case. It's not God's intention for marriage. You don't enter a union with one eye on the exit. 
And that's his point in verses 11 and 12. Wrongful divorce is a sin. Wrongful divorce is a sin because it's against God's intentions. Why did Moses permit it? Because of hard-heartedness. Let me read those verses again, verse 11 and 12. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Very, very hard-hitting. Now, this is one episode, and this doesn't mean that there are never legitimate grounds for divorce. If you turn to page 986, Matthew 19, I can just illustrate this very simply. Uh, Matthew 19, we have a parallel. Matthew's telling of this account, okay? So uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptics. They all see together, and they tell the same material, but they, they, they order it differently, and they give different amounts of material. So they edit, but they don't create. And in Matthew 19, we have the parallel account of what's just been told. And notice Matthew 19, verse 9. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Notice there's an exception there that isn't in Mark. Is that because these guys are hopelessly clueless and they don't, they don't realize they're contradicting each other? No. It's because of their intention as editors. So Matthew includes an exception Jesus doesn't in Mark. Now, that should alert us to the fact that Mark 10 isn't the last word on divorce. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul mentions another grounds for divorce. It's desertion. There are times when a marriage is catastrophically broken and it has to end. One partner has gone. Such cases are very hard. What about the abusive husband who harms the wife and children? What about the unrepentant adulterer who violates the marriage bed? What about the spouse who skips town and never comes back? These are hard cases. But we should not base our ethics on the hard cases. Jesus is clear, God, divorce is not God's intention for marriage. Now, what are some implications for those of us here who want to follow Jesus, who want to have integrity in this very, very important area of life, whether you're single or not? What are, I want to just spit, spell out three implications. We could say a lot more. Firstly, be very careful who you marry. I think that's pretty obvious from the teaching. If it's that important, then be very careful about who you marry. Some Christians do enter into unwise marriages. And if marriage is for life, it's a union that's one flesh, then you should take great care to marry someone who will help you grow as a follower of Jesus. When the marriage is spiritually unequal, there's constant tension. And this is why it's wise not to marry a non-believing person. Not that there aren't great non-Christian people in the world, there are. And you may meet one who is attractive and a great companion. I'm not denying that. But the question about a suitable life companion comes down to this, doesn't it? Will you be able to share in the things that are most important to you? And if... Jesus Christ is the center of your life, if Jesus is your defining relationship, if Jesus is your identity, then it wouldn't be fair to a non-Christian to marry them. Because you're bringing them into a relationship where Jesus is number one. 
And that's going to lead to tension at the very least, isn't it? You know, some single Christians undervalue the benefits of singleness. Single people, you enjoy great freedom. Great freedom. Once you're married, you're no longer your own. You belong to another person for life. Hence these wedding vows which we say uh, in, the, in the wedding service. Marriage is a sign of unity and loyalty which all should uphold and honor. It enriches society and strengthens community. No one should enter into it lightly or selfishly, but reverently and responsibly in the sight of Almighty God. Be very careful who you marry. And let me just ask you, if you're single and you're thinking about marriage, let me ask you a, a, a provocative question. If some wise Christians, who maybe are older than you or who know you very well, counseled you not to marry someone, would you have the humility to listen? Or would you just go ahead? Implications. Second implication, if you are married here, then work very hard on your marriage. There's no other way. Couples enter marriage with all kinds of great romantic expectations. The reality of marriage is much richer. But also much more ordinary and much more challenging. When we got married, an old friend from this church, Andy Wyatt, said to us, you know, marriage, the first year of marriage is the best year of your life and the worst year of your life. Melissa would say he was right. <laughs> marriage brings two sinners into the closest proximity and holds them together for the rest of their natural lives. Do we imagine that that would be easy? One thing we've learned over 23 years is that the only way to keep a marriage strong is to work on it constantly. It's like a beautiful walled garden. Weeds will grow and kill the beauty of that garden without constant work. There are seasons within marriage. There are ups and downs. There will be times when you reach out for counseling, and there's nothing to be ashamed of. We need it. Counseling is highly customized discipleship. Remember the marriage service. I take you to be my husband slash wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death us do part, according to God's holy law, in the presence of God I make this vow. So work very hard on it. Third implication, take great care about your sexual integrity, and this goes for all of us, singles, marrieds, those who are widowed. If sex is the sign of a promise that a couple have made before God, then it is strictly reserved for lifelong marriage. Then there are boundaries around it. We have no business making sex our private plaything to entertain and indulge ourselves. Whether it's with pornographic fantasies that spoil the heart, or with extramarital sex, or with premarital sex. We are under constant pressure in our society on this. Young people, most of all. Are you young people? You growing up is such a hard time. It's such a hard time to be godly. Things have changed so much in the last 30, 40 years. We pray for you. 
Let's help them, shall we? Let's help each other to live lives of purity and integrity before God and each other so that we can keep the command of Hebrews 13. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. So the first aspect of this radical discipleship that we've got in Mark 10 is this integrity, relational sexual integrity with with marriage. Disciples should honor God's intention. And to do that will mean sacrifice, won't it? It will mean giving up some of your own self-centeredness, your own desires, your rights in favor of the other person's good. Because in marriage, God's character is revealed. We are to love and relate to each other as he loves and relates to us. Completely faithful. He's sacrificially committed. He has an all-embracing unity. And that's what it means, part of what it means to take up your cross. See the connections? Being a disciple means you live like Jesus. Jesus was faithful to his bride, the church. Jesus laid down his rights for the church. Jesus suffered on behalf of his spouse. He gave himself up for others' good. So for us to take up our cross means to live like that. You see how it connects? Yeah? Okay. First point was very long. Second point is much quicker. Second thing we notice here is humility. Verses 13 to 16, people were bringing these little children uh, to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. They rebuked them. Take them away. Get those kids out of here. What? Jesus' indignation here is quite wonderful. Look at verse 14. He was indignant. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Then he adds, truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. What does he mean? What does it mean to enter the kingdom of God, receive it like a child? Now we have to get clear away some of our baggage about children, our culture, Uh, sees children as innocent and blameless. But the Bible doesn't share that optimistic view. The Bible teaches that we are all corrupted by sin, even from the womb. So we don't come into life as a blank slate. We're already corrupted. Sin is our first inheritance. Proverbs says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. A child is not a blank slate. There's a great story by an Australian preacher called Philip Jensen about his two kids. He had an older boy and a younger daughter. And I think the boy's name was Robert. And um, Robert was about three or four years old, and the little girl was was just learning to speak. She hadn't yet said a a complete sentence. And they had a really nice radio in the living room in the house. And the children were told never to touch the radio. It's very expensive. And one day, the parents were out in the kitchen, and Robert was in the kitchen with them. So they knew where he was. But the little girl was back in the living room on her own. And she could climb up and get hold of this radio. And they went in and found the radio in pieces on the floor, smashed. Tried to get it, and it had fallen. And her first words were, Robert did it. (laughs) That was her first sentence she ever spoke. (laughs) Robert did it. (laughs) We have a sentimental view of children. This is a blind spot in our culture. We don't see what Jesus is doing here because in the culture of the first century, uh, children have no status. If you're a Jew, they have no status. If you're a Greek or Roman, they have no status. 
Children have no status, no social power, they're vulnerable. They are totally dependent. They can't do things for themselves. They don't come to Jesus with some credentials. They don't come to Jesus thinking that they're fairly decent and worthy. They are essentially helpless and they can only depend. They have to be brought to Jesus and he holds them. And therefore, what Jesus is saying is, if you, any of you friends, want to enter my kingdom, you've got to come into it like a little child. That means you come in humbly, not entitled. We come to Jesus with no claim for ourselves. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress. We've got nothing. You have to be at the point of saying, I am not worthy, Lord, of you. I am dependent on you. I don't deserve anything from you. I'm just coming as I am. Have mercy on me, a sinner. That's how you enter as a little child. Humbly. And secondly, disciples don't earn, they receive. We have been blessed with five children. About four of them are here today. And one thing we've learned is that children don't have a problem receiving gifts. Have you ever noticed that? They don't have a problem receiving gifts. You ever try and give a gift to an adult? It's like, oh, oh, no, oh, sorry, I, I couldn't, I couldn't take, oh, you shouldn't have, oh, thank you so much. No, 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 please, please. please. Children just go, thanks! <laughs> More? <laughs> they couldn't, don't think they have to earn it. They never say, I couldn't possibly accept that. They gladly receive. They trust they're willing to be dependent. That's the way to receive the kingdom of God as a recipient. It's true of all of us. If you don't come like that, you're not getting in. That's what Jesus says. If you don't come like a child, dependent, with nothing in your hand, if you don't come like that, you're not getting in. This is how you get into God's kingdom not to try and earn it, not to assume you'll be given a place because you're not that bad or you're worth it. No, none of that. We tend to expect that God will accept people who are deserving. No, there are no deserving people. God accepts babies who have done nothing to commend themselves. And so Jesus says, they're, they're your visual aid, friends, if you want to enter the kingdom. You come in like that, like a nobody. It's the only way in. So let me ask you today, as we close, are you a Christian? I'm not saying were you born in a family that was Christian or you have certain beliefs. Are you personally a Christian? If this is what it means to follow Jesus. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great London preacher of the last century, often used to ask a question to find out a person's spiritual understanding, he would say, are you now ready to say you are a Christian? Just, just think, ask that yourself now. Are you now ready to say you are a Christian? And over the years, he said, people would hesitate and say, I don't feel I'm good enough. That's the problem. He gave this response. 
If they say I don't feel I'm good enough, at once I know that they're still thinking in terms of themselves. Their idea still is that they have to make themselves good enough to be a Christian. It sounds very modest, but it's a lie of the devil. It's a denial of the faith to think you have to make yourself good enough. You will never be good enough. Nobody has ever been good enough. The essence of the Christian salvation is that you are not good enough. He is good enough. Jesus is good enough, and I am in him. Amen? That's the only way. His point is that becoming a Christian is a change in our relationship with God, not a change in your conduct. Jesus' work, when it's believed in and rested in, instantly changes your standing before God. You go from darkness to light, from night to day, from death to life. The new birth comes. We are in him. If you could have earned God's favor somehow, do you really think Jesus would have gone to the cross? Why would Jesus go to the cross to die for your sins if you could have somehow done it yourself? It's a ridiculous thought. It's monstrous. The cross is a last solution. It's the only thing left for humanity. Because only there can sinful people like you and me receive the goodness of Jesus. We receive it by sinful trust. That's all. Amazing thought. So stop trying. And start trusting. There's a great story of the Christian life by an old writer called John Bunyan. He talked about this, Christ, this character called um, Christian. He has this huge burden on his back and he's always, you know, he's weighed down by it. And then he comes to this hill and he sees a cross at the top and he walks up the hill. And as he looks at the cross, the burden breaks and falls and rolls away. And it rolls down the hill and it goes into an open tomb, never to be seen again. That's what happens. This burden rolls away. Have you felt your burden roll away? You're dependent on Jesus. Not because you were deserving, but because you were undeserving. We never move on from that. We never graduate from that. That is the A, B, C, and it's also the X, Y, Z. The simple gospel which we have believed and on which we take our stand. So we become people of integrity and humility. What are you like with people who disagree with you? What is your attitude? Is it like a child who doesn't deserve anything? Or are you judgmental, harsh, and critical? How dare they disagree with me? I know what I'm talking about. What's your attitude to those who you consider inferior? It's very interesting how Christians respond to people who wait on them in restaurants, people who pick up the rubbish, bus drivers, cleaners. Do we view these people as infinitely precious people who bear the image of the living God, or are they just servants? Are we a bit full of ourselves? What about people whose lifestyle you disagree with? Do you look down on them? We shouldn't. We're just the same at heart. Not if you've been shaped by the gospel. What about people who obstruct you, irritate you, frustrate you, get in your way? Our posture should reflect that we are like the little ones, freely accepted by Jesus who has blessed us. Being a disciple means integrity and humility. And remember how this sermon began with a very successful man, a football coach, 
Friends, we are not following a coach. We're following someone far greater. We're following the king, Jesus. And what kind of a leader is he? He embodies integrity and humility for us. He is faithful to his bride, the church. He gives his life for us. He is humble, gentle, and lowly. Let's go to him now. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you were not afraid to speak the truth to us. And thank you that you have loved the church and kept the church going for 2,000 years and will until you return. We praise you and bless you. We ask that you make us into followers who are in your image, who love you and who call others to do the same. And we pray now for somebody here who maybe this morning realized they're not actually a Christian, but they want to and they're ready to come right now. Receive them, we pray, just as you received those little children. Amen. Amen. We're going to stand when the musicians start and we're going to sing together.